Hello everyone and welcome back to a new episode of Music Works. Today we have a very special guest, David Taylor, one of the leading entrepreneurs and thought leaders in the world of classical music. In this episode we will discuss David's new book, The Future of Classical Music Part 1, and dig deep into important topics like the industry's complacency to change, the survivor bias that is present within our audience research, and basic steps that must be taken to start moving in a progressive direction. We'll soon head over to the Music Works studio where David is waiting, but first, here is an advert from our sponsor. Music Works is sponsored by the Musicians' Union. I'm a member of the Musicians' Union. It's the trade union for musicians living and or working in the UK, and it's a community of 32,000 members working to protect musicians' rights and campaigning for a fairer industry. As well as campaigning to fix streaming and keep musicians working in the EU post-Brexit, the union collectively bargains for musicians working in orchestras and theatres and sets minimum recommended rates for freelance musicians working in other sectors. Its expert staff provide contract advice, legal advice and assistance, and a range of benefits and services to help musicians in every aspect of their work. Be part of something bigger and get the recognition you deserve. Join now at the MU.org. Welcome, David. Thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you. So today we have David Taylor, entrepreneur, consultant and coach, and we are here to talk about the small topic of the future of classical music and particularly um, your new book that you've written on the subject. So really excited to have this conversation. Why don't we kick off by you telling us a bit about yourself and your career? Yeah, so I've uh, a slightly unusual route into all of this. So my original background uh, is that I was a cellist, um, was quite disillusioned at music college, um, but uh, went and studied or taught abroad uh, after there in Jerusalem of all places, but then came back to the UK and didn't really know what to do with, with my life. Um, so I had the famous uh, idea of going, oh, how hard can it be to, to start a non-profit? So I created a youth orchestra in the region of Yorkshire. And from there, that was my slippery slope into being fascinated about how the industry works, entrepreneurship, creating businesses, marketing things differently, the digital age, uh, mainly based around some of the hurdles and challenges I faced doing that, uh, but also seeing uh, how some of our successes were being achieved where they weren't necessarily being achieved elsewhere in the sector. Um, so I now have taken all those lessons and experiences and now try and help either um, individuals or organisations in the, the classical music industry thrive in the modern world. Fantastic. The youth orchestra, the gateway to so much. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah, so, uh, and a very um, varied and interesting career you have. And certainly um, one of the things that I've um, noticed for a while about your, your blog posts and content and now your book is that you have a really um, excellent way of comparing the classical music industry to other industries and other kind of examples of how things happen in the world. And, you know, that can be very demonstrative in showing um, the differences in how we approach things. Um, so congratulations on your book. Thank you. Very exciting. <laughs> yeah, it feels quite strange to have something physical and tangible. It's it's quite a, yeah, a nice surprise. Okay, so it's, here's the book. I love it. I love it already. Music. I love how it's part one as well. So there's obviously going to be future books. Uh, yes, definitely. <laughs> so hopefully there'll be additions off the back of this, which would be great. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's, it's for me, it's as it says in the book, it's meant to be a conversation starter. And I think as the world keeps changing and the rate of change increases, we're going to have to keep having these conversations more and more. So hopefully this is the, the start of a journey of them. 
Absolutely. And so very much looking forward to having a conversation about this now. So um, where should we start? What is the, what's the key, the key message that you have then about the future of classical music? For me, it's basically that we've reached a crisis point. And for a long time in the, across the entire industry, across all different countries, uh, we have created a culture that is incredibly resistant to change and innovation. And we are now almost conditioned not to change and that any sort of conversation, let alone action around this, is negative. Um, and this is now getting more and more detrimental. We're now at the point where we're seeing audiences drop uh, and they're not coming back post-COVID. The data is now in to support all of this. And we're now um, uh, the opposite of reaping the world. We're seeing the consequences of our inaction throughout all this period. So we're now at this moment where we really need to actually have some honest conversations about what the, the future looks like, how the, our previous practice have been, and really um, identify how we, we create a route forward throughout all this. Um, for me, it's this is now almost like um, iceberg dead ahead. Uh, the fire alarms are there, break clear glass in case of emergency. This is the point where we need to start having um, some drastic action. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, the, the evidence now um, is backing up the things that, um, that, you know, those of us working in this part of the industry have known for a while. And I think, um, you know, I know that um, large classical music organisations are aware of these challenges as well and have a variety of challenges themselves in terms of dealing with it to do with um, to do with culture, to do with history in particular, um, and finances and stability and so on and so forth. Um, what do you think the current appetite for change is? Broad, oh, it's a very broad question. Tokenistic. I think there is now a um, more of a trend of people saying that they want to change because obviously the world is changing and that sort of ticks a few boxes. I think there are individuals within organisations who are wanting change and things to be different, but we're, we're still at a level where decision makers in particular are incredibly resistant. So if they do say they want change, it is mainly just to tick another fundraising application box rather than doing anything meaningful. Um, I was having a conversation recently with someone who was telling me the story about an orchestra and wanting a, an app to attract young people. In essence, all they wanted it to be was just to say that they could offer young, uh, young people cheaper tickets rather than actually change anything about the experience and create a, an environment that would actually work for that. So I think there's still a lot of this um, old way of thinking, doing things and basically just saying them for the sake of them. And I think um, there's not really been the necessity before to drive change because of how funding works. And I think that necessity is now very much on the horizon. So hopefully this will be, be uh, more into the fore. Yeah, absolutely. And so just to clarify what you're saying about the sort of funding landscape, um, there's obviously the, there's the audiences issue and the sort of way, the way that income is generated by organisations. And then there's also the, the funding, the grant funding um, landscape as well. Yeah, definitely. So I think uh, the majority of UK orchestras in particular have their funding come from the Arts Council and grants and applications. In Europe, it's significantly more state funded. Uh, in the States, although there's less, uh, there's no sort of state funding in the same way, there's, um, as in the, the, the nation funding, uh, there's more individual philanthropy. So in essence, there isn't the, the outer um, consumer influences as to uh, impacting how we do things. And realistically, we really should be doing that because ultimately they're no one wants to play to empty audiences. And no matter how much money we throw at things, it's not going to solve that problem. Oh, that's interesting. So you've just given three different models there from across the world. But what you're saying is that all of none of them are, are that dependent on the consumer experience. Massively. Right? Um, yeah. All of them are kind of insulated from the um, 
the changes of the market and because the market has changed so rapidly in how we behave and interact with each other we haven't noticed that and i think that it'll be a point where when we do notice if we notice too late and bizarrely each of our different models insulate us in, in different ways um so i think we're still kind of immune to that necessity that's really going to drive change absolutely and so what are the kind of changes that we are seeing at the moment yeah, I think we're now starting to get an awareness of digital being more of a thing. It was great to see during the pandemic how um, organisations really started to adopt and lean into digital and also that digital didn't have to be stunning, beautiful 4K footage. It could be authentic, genuine social media content, which is the more powerful stuff anyway. Um, one thing I loved was seeing organisations move quickly and that we don't necessarily have to have a three-year planning cycle to be able to get things done. We can do stuff in a week if we need to. Um, sadly, we seem to be taking some steps back from there, but I think that's going to be um, a big thing going forwards. Um, but for me, the, the one that's going to be most important is understanding how we as organisations adopt change. And I think that's going to be the, the big challenge going forwards. So hopefully I think we're starting to get more curiosity around that. Um, so fingers crossed that'll be now more of a, a conversation and something that keeps being developed. But it's still still a slow process. That is it's what you mentioned about the three year planning cycle is really critical, isn't it? Because, you know, mm. e even if the most innovative change were to start happening right now today, and I'm not saying that it isn't in the planning in some cases, but, you know, it's going to be it's under those cycles. It's going to be three years before we actually see it and before the audiences get to reevaluate their their view of classical music. Right. Totally. And even just on the artistic side, if we think art is there to reflect society, like three years is a long time. Like yeah. what you do now in reaction to a certain event, whether that was like Black Lives Matters or the Arab Spring or COVID or any of these big external factors, in three years, there'll be something else. So it's not really like a reactive artistic format either. So I don't think anyone really wins in that, that scenario. But because it's the way we've always done things, we've never challenged that pre-existing thought process. So it's a shame that we're like, yeah, still, on, still that far behind. Yeah, absolutely. So what would you like to see happen then? What would, you know, what are the ways through this? Yeah, I think there's, there's sort of quite some individual challenge and then there's like the big, like golden egg challenge. I um, don't know why I've gone for golden egg for that analogy, but we'll stick with it. So the, the so big the golden one... Golden egg challenge. Golden egg challenge. Yeah. <laughs> there's an unexpected hashtag from this. Um, <laughs> I think for me, the one that will solve everything else. So I, I kind of differentiate differentiate them into micro and macro challenges so the the micro ones are how do we market better how do we reach young people how do we make the most digital age how do we get more diversity equality and inclusivity in our organizations um and the micro doesn't minimize or reduce any of those issues they're all very big and powerful issues but i mean that if we were to tackle and solve one of those it doesn't solve any of the others and also we don't solve the underlying problems for me, the macro, this big thing sitting over the top is why can't we identify problems clearly, um, create uh, potential solutions, develop them quickly, test them, evaluate them and repeat. And so basically, like, why are we unable to adopt and implement inno innovation is the big one. And I think once we tackle that, we can the macro, the micro ones will be easier to fall into place and we have long term methods to solve other problems that come up. So for me, that would be the one I would love for us to tackle first. But I think there's there's lots we can do that are a lot easier than global culture change of how we, we function. Um, so a lot around best practice. So particularly on social media marketing, we're still making lots of simple mistakes that you can Google in two seconds, which I think is 
unforgivable for a multi-million pound arts organization's marketing department um and i think that's gonna be a great point of starting in terms of reaching people in the digital age uh and then going forward as well sort of this idea of experimenting and curiosity i think are probably the most easy ones to get going with yeah absolutely but i do i do think you're right as much as i know it's um you know tackling the 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 golden egg problem as you say is uh is um more of a challenge than some might be as soon as you start talking about for example having new and innovative approaches to marketing or programming you suddenly do come back to what's in the way of that you know and then you come back to innovation processes and you know not having a framework for dealing with major change totally and i i from working with organizations who are large as well i i massively empathize the structures that are in place that mean it's hard to do that um if I, I to counter that i would then also say that there are larger organizations who take change faster and i know that they will always have more money so like things like apple or nike or football teams like manchester united like they're going to be significantly harder to turn around as a big ship and yes they have more resources but they still have that culture side and creating processes and the idea of like if uh, I think in the book it, it quotes a report where it's saying about 20, I think it's 26% of audience drop off uh, from concerts. If there's a 26% drop off in sales at Apple, they'd be doing something pretty damn quick about it. And yet our response is, let's do the same thing again and not really question it. So I think, yeah, yeah that idea of tacking the how and the why behind the, the scenes is going to be the most vital thing for, for long-term sustainability. Well, absolutely. And And the other kind of, for me, proof of that is that, you know, I have a lot of these conversations and I've, I find it... Um, I'm always very careful um, not to make generalizing comments about organizations. Most organizations are quite different, although there are commonalities. They have also have different challenges and different cultures and different specific reasons, different perhaps donors that require certain things, you know, like financial implications and incentives and so on. Um, and this, the idea of a global shift in attitude um, is is the thing that makes it easy to easier to talk about possible solutions because it's when you start trying to solve a problem through so many fixed parameters it just becomes impossible totally i think culture is a really big part of it and particularly because we don't really have employ people from other industries we're quite an insular industry on that side we're not really getting new thoughts and ideas and ways of doing things um within our current culture setup so trying to break that culture is going to actually have big benefits not just for one organization, but um, all across as well. Mm. You have some great uh, case studies in the book about um, where you've sort of um, explored um, change processes or sort of like things that people, that organizations have tried to increase audiences perhaps, um, and then compared them with what somebody from, or an organization from a, not from the classical music industry might have done in that situation. <laughs> Do you want to give us one of your favorite examples? Yeah, um, I think there's some, oh, there's, I always get excited by the thing that I write, so it's hard to actually pick a favourite one, but there's some, some really interesting ones parallel some other um, areas. I think actually my favourite one in, in there is is not because it's about the proms, it's because we can transfer it onto, but it's why the proms is the Skype of the classical music world. And although it's uh, quite a, sort of an attention-grabbing title, it's an analysis of the proms through game theory mm. and comparing it to Skype and Blockbuster and HMV and those organisations that had huge large leads in their area and then blew them so with the the bbc proms for example they have had a decades-long lead in filming and uh, concerts and connecting them to the world the world's largest festival and within six months of a global pandemic every orchestra in the world is now doing that 
and so I think for them they're in crisis because there's a um, they're going to be overtaken as people start to do things better and they've they've had this uh, a rather finite way of reaching people. But I think the next level of that of, the, of that chapter is that you can insert your organisation into where it says the BBC proms. And that's also quite a useful analysis that we all tend to have this quite finite um, way of thinking of things. And actually, infinite games are quite a, and having infinite goals is quite a, a nice, nuanced way of of doing things. Um, I also really, really like the story about survivorship bias in there and um, audience data. So that one is about an organisation who uh, wanted to reach new audiences, and they, in conversation with them, uh, I suggested that they would change their their concert gear because they were wearing tails and white tie and looking like extras from Downton Abbey. And they said, oh, we thought of doing that. So we asked our audience and they said they like it. So we didn't do it. And that's a really good example of survivorship bias, which is, uh, in essence, uh, comes from the story of uh, the, the the Air Force in America who um, were wanting to, to get more planes to survive going into battle. So they wanted to find out the best places on the plane to put armor because you can't put lots of armor on a plane because it won't fly. So where's the best and most efficient place to put this? And they kept logging the damage of all the planes that came back from battle of where the bullet holes were. So the logic was suggested that you would put armor where the bullet holes are. And the statistician they were working with said that this was basically a case of survivorship bias. And they were only uh, basing our information on the survivors of this scenario. So what they should do is put the armor in the places where bullet holes weren't, because that's where people were getting shot down if they were shot in essence. So because similarly, we're... were returning. Exactly, yeah. So they were yeah. the ones who were were not there. We were only getting information from the survivors. So we're obsessed with giving audience uh, questionnaires and asking feedback from our existing audience, and who are and they are the survivors of our bad marketing, our bad content, our bad experience, our bad programming. They're the ones who are still there. We're not going to attract new people based on their information. So why do we waste our time asking and making decisions based on that? Mm. And how do you access the uh, the non-survivors then? Yeah, that is a very good question. I think bizarrely, there's there's two levels. And I think we, we can massively overcomplicate our industry. There's Although it's not a long-term way of doing things, I think there's a lot of improvements we can do from just basic observations of the world and vague common sense. And that can actually get us quite far. And I know that probably seems quite a, um, uh, a flippant thing to say, but we are so far behind in some things and actually just taking that step back. And yeah, common sense is going to make big differences. Like maybe we allow people to take photos in concerts and that might actually make the experience better. Or uh, do we have to have an interval? Maybe we make them shorter or all these things we can try and experiment just by the common sense will be again, like, um, googling how to do instagram marketing better would be a really obvious one because lots of large international multi um uh, million pound arts organizations will still do the wrong size photo on instagram put it landscape rather than portrait which is a personal pet peeve so i think there's quite a lot we can do already to get us to being further ahead without even needing to go down the how do we reach new people route uh to find out but then uh there's lots of ways of focus grouping we can then also then try and do specifically things that are an experiment with the idea that they might fail, which is quite a, a rare um, uh, thing that we do in our, our world. We rarely actually put something on with the idea of seeing how it goes and then developing it afterwards. So I think there's there's lots we can do from a practical and then uh, focus group audience research base we can do after then. But I think initially there could be a lot we could do from just observations and uh, yeah, like like in the book, a lot of um, observing what other sectors have done first. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the lessons that we can learn from other sectors, even from other areas of the music industry, just the non-classical sectors of the music industry, there's just so much to learn. We do um, work for uh, mainly in the classical and folk genres, but in the even in the kind of context of doing PR for album releases, the practice differs quite a lot <laughs> between those two genres. It's really, really interesting to see how even other areas of the music industry and, and then the entertainment industry, and then, you know, as you say, you move out to actual other you know completely different um models is there an example of a a project or an organization or something that you think is really good a really good practice that sort of paves the way in classical music or outside i uh, well interesting because <laughs> i bizarrely you know I, I always <laughs> that was gonna be my thing i always really struggle and I, I tend to spend most of my time looking outside uh, for inspiration mm. um although uh, Australia um, seems to have quite a few organisations and orchestras in particular who are trying things differently and creating some really good digital content. Uh, so Queensland Symphony, Australian Chamber Orchestra, um, they're doing some really fun things. But for me, I think looking at organisations that are doing, have had similar challenges to us are really interesting. So one of the ones that's in the book is the Formula One and how they've adapted over the last few years. I think it's really fascinating to look at. Um, but I'm, my current interest is in the, the 100, which is like an adaptation of cricket into a more audience-friendly format, and uh, as well as only changing the format for marketing it, they're also changing the format of the rules of the game as well. Uh, and um, so I think that's quite an interesting one. I think their, their results are 56% of people who buy tickets are going for the first time to a cricket game. So obviously oh, that's, that's worked as a, uh, a completely what you would think has been an incredibly traditional uh, industry and, and uh, organisation. So I think for me, that's another one to really explore and see how they're doing things differently. Yeah, absolutely. Because I know that um, I'm sure that test match cricket is very similar to the classical music industry in terms of I'm sure that there are lots of uh, audiences for that who, who are, um, you know, who may not be in favour of the of the 100 um, or who may think it's perhaps diluting it or you know dumbing it down in some way um having said that i'm not sure that classical audiences really do feel like that but that's certainly what the uh, what the organizations who are trying to keep them happy worry about isn't it yeah I, it's funny the hundreds um which you've, you've missed it is basically changing the the rules of some of the game but also the presentation so it's now yeah. decimized to into like playing 100 balls rather than six in an over and all these different things mm. um but it only launched last year and quite interestingly some of the commentators were ex-internationals and they were being quite open about their concerns or their, their uncertainties to whether it was a good thing or not but then they were coming around to things and that was quite interesting that there's a dialogue between the establishment who don't like it and pushing things forwards um but yeah i think because they're going to be a, an organization that's steeped in tradition and history and resistant to change um formula one the example used in the book there i think mentions their previous chief exec, Bernie Eccleston, with a quote on the lines of like, I'm not interested in all this tweeting and Facebook nonsense. If I wanted to, to reach young people through advertising, like they should go through, or advertisers should go to Disney. I'm only interested in the old man with a pension and lots of money. So there's that side where it is they're so, this is their previous chief exec and they changed after that. So I think there's, it's interesting to see that those other organizations that have similarities in the discussion around change, I think, is, is really important. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the idea of, of the cricket commentators' context of the new format being trialled, being presented to people, people having bought tickets for it, genuinely seeing how it goes and talking about 
how they feel about it at the same time. It's a lot different from sitting in a boardroom and talking about how you might feel about something that might theoretically happen in the future. Definitely. And I think it, as well, it includes the audience in that discussion. If they're new and they're saying, oh, this is new and you can see why and uh, the concern. It's nice to have that open and that also doesn't completely alienate those people who have loved the five-day uh, test match, traditional 100-year history type thing. Um, so I think it was nice to bring that conversation into part of it. The other non-parallel between this analogy, uh, between cricket and classical music, is that cricket has a public, um, you know, it's on the radio, there's commentary on the TV, that there's a lot of discussion around it. And I noticed there's a, there's a chapter in the book about the, um, the invisible leadership in, uh, in orchestras. And, you know, there is no, I mean, there, obviously there is music radio, but it's usually about music. It's not necessarily about, you know, how it's presented and, and the differences and so on and so forth. Do you think there's a there's something in that as well in terms of creating the conversation around the industry? Definitely. Um, so that article came from being at the Association of British Orchestras Conference. And there there's lots of panel discussions and talks and, and things. And this this awareness that the, there weren't really many people who were running orchestras leading that conversation. And then similarly on social media, no one really had a channel or a platform or a voice about what it was. And if we think about Tesla um, or Apple or other big organizations, we tend to know who the figureheads are. And similarly with sports, you will actually be quite likely to know who the owners are and they're involved in the, the discussions, more so in the United States than in, in the UK. But that's it's certainly a big thing now to, to be seen to have visible leaders who are fighting the case. And I think now because orchestras are so much more than the Saturday night concert, they are also the education project, the dementia work, the audience outreach, the technology development. There's so much more than what they're doing that doesn't come from the conductor. There is someone in charge of that. So I'm baffled as to why we're not hearing from those individuals more. I understand, again, like everyone has time commitments. It also comes from a human side that obviously there's anxieties about putting yourself out there in the world. So I'm incredibly sympathetic to, to the journey that goes into doing that. But I think having those individuals be a part of the conversation publicly whether that is on the radio as you say in public settings or even just within being advocates at conferences social media thought leaders mm -hmm. um that's a really interesting part um i think i mentioned that chapter as well I, I wrote something about thought leaders in the classical industry and trying to identify who the sort of 10 people to watch could be from my perspective and found it very hard to think of who would be running an orchestra i would describe as a thought leader and I think if you were to ask most people who is the chief exec of an orchestra, most wouldn't know. And especially if you're a student, which I think is quite fascinating. And that if you're applying to be a member of an orchestra and you don't know who your boss is, that's interesting that that person has been behind the scenes for quite a while. Well, absolutely. And it, it misses an opportunity for um, that orchestra or that organisation to have a voice and to have a, its values stated in a particular way, doesn't it? totally values is a great word for putting it i think that's fantastic and the conductors tend usually to talk about music but values of an orchestra is such a bigger thing and that goes into like what their place in the community why a concert hall is important uh all their other outreach things and it gets people to be a part of that conversation and again conductors don't usually stay at orchestras for a long time but orchestra chief execs do so actually having that as part of that conversation is really important and again donors people to come and work for the organization acting as a lighthouse uh, being the embodiment of an organisation, I think there's there's so much within there, and I'd love to hear more from from those individuals, even if I I disagree with them. I think it's great to have them for right at the centre of um, everything they do. Well, absolutely, because of yeah, when you get to hear from them, even if you do disagree, you you get to under you always get to understand more. 
Um, and there is such a lot about the classical music industry that is non-transparent and difficult to understand from within it, never mind from outside it. <laughs> <laughs> Massively. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that's always a, a huge challenge. And yeah, especially when it is like, why are you doing this work in a certain school or what is this certain research project? That the only person who can answer that is the person in charge. Um, yeah. So I think it's really important to have that person really, yeah, showing what they're doing, especially when they are they're such vital parts of communities and things. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. Um, so where can we buy the book? Yes, yeah, so the book is available on Amazon, but the easiest way to find the right Amazon place for you is if you go to my website, which is david-taylor.org slash books with an S. Uh, that's going to be the easiest way to get you to the right Amazon uh, country of your choice. Brilliant. Oh, and it's available as a hard copy and it's also available as a Kindle as well, if you want the electronic version. Perfect. Well, congratulations again on the book and the fantastic ideas within it. It's really packed with um, thoughts for the future of the industry. Is there any final word you'd like to leave us with? Yeah, I think for me, wherever you are in your career, when you're listening to this, whether you're a musician, you're established, you're just at the beginning, uh, you're administrator, um, I'd encourage you to start the the curiosity. I think we're going to need some big answers coming up. And um, as much as I would love to my ego to say that I have all the answers, I certainly do not. So I think the more people who are part of this conversation, who are curious about what the future is, who begin questioning the status quo, um, is only a good thing. So I'd really encourage you to be a part of that journey in whatever way you can. Lovely. Thank you so much, David, for your research and insight on the future of classical music. As you mentioned very clearly, the industry has now reached a crisis point where we are seeing the consequences of fostering a culture resistant to change and innovation. Despite a couple of tangible changes, such as the awareness of digital being a thing and leaning towards genuine content and the evidence that musical organisations can indeed move and plan quickly, we still need to see the desire of change coming from the decision makers in the industry. Until that happens, we can't really start to fully design, implement and adopt innovative approaches in our organisations in order to reach a newer, larger and wider variety of audiences in the digital age. If you're involved in the classical music industry and feel concerned about the audience and sales job or indeed anything else, please do check out David's book at www.david-taylor.org books. It's been such a privilege to have you here, David. Thank you so much for your time and for your hard work in paving an innovative future for the classical music industry. It's been so much fun. Thank you so much.